0: Hey, this is Carol Barks with Before It Begins, your source for learning more about how to best leverage your brain for better communication and quicker resolution of hard conversations. In our previous episode, we talked about how to listen to better hear. And this time we're going to tackle the flip side of that coin, which is how to speak to really be heard. And so what I know for sure is that we all have things to say. And some of us more than others, granted, but we all talk. And my assumption is that when we're speaking, we really want that messaging to get across and we really want to be heard. Now, I can tell you that sometimes that's not always the case. And I can also tell you that sometimes that's not the fault of the listener Sometimes it's the delivery of the speaker. So this week on Before It Begins, I'm going to talk to you about some pretty significant ways that you can up your game in speaking and message delivery so that it can be heard more effectively. The first one is that I want to talk to you a little bit about your tone and your pitch when you're speaking. The second thing I want to talk about are some neuroscience-based principles for more effective communication. And the third thing I want to share with you is that word usage and selection really matter. And I want you to be able to actually take these away as usable tips that you can immediately use right after you've listened to this to up your game in the world of speaking. So how about we dig in? So when it comes to managing our conversations and our pitch and our tone, When we get stressed and stakes are high, our pitch tends to rise and we start talking faster. That signals to the listener that we are not comfortable with the conversation. Maybe we're not competent in the topic And we're not somebody that we are leaning into wanting to listen to. So I want you, especially for the women that are out there listening, I want you to lower your pitch. If you tend to talk higher in a higher pitch when you get nervous, I want you to lower that back down and settle into your voice. Oprah talks about this as your authentic voice. So lower that pitch so it's not as high and it's not as squeaky. That actually can come across to the other person as predatorial, as something that is uh, um, as some a prey. And I don't want that to be the case. The next thing that I want you to really pay attention to is the tone with which you're talking to people. So when we're talking conversationally, It sounds free-flowing, it sounds simple, it sounds easy. In your mind, I want you to think about the tone that you utilize when you're having a beverage with Somebody and just catching up. I don't care if that beverage is wine, beer, water, iced tea, whatever it is that's your go to beverage. It's a tone that's conversational and it's not judgy and it's not dictatorial. And that's the tone that I want you to approach your conversations with. I actually don't distinguish between my friend conversations and my business conversations or my tense conversations. That friendly, relaxed tone is a tone that the other person's brain receives as approachable and accommodating and not scary. On contrast to that, when you have that tone where it oftentimes is with a finger pointing and the neck bobbing, and I'm telling you, you're going to do this and you're going to do this now, and this is how it's going to play out, and I don't care what you think that's not received very well. So our brains have this innate need for fairness. And when you start telling me what I'm going to do, just like little kids don't like being told what to do, that doesn't change when we're adults. And so you start demanding and telling me what's going to happen, Even if I had come into a conversation wanting to give you what you wanted, I am very likely to do just the opposite just because you're telling me I'm going to do something. So I want you to dial back that aggression in your tone because it doesn't land well with the other person and often gets you the opposite result than the one that you're seeking. So I want you to really, really lean in to being conversational and managing that voice in there. And so what that means is sometimes you can fabricate it. So I One pro tip that I would share with you is if you spend a lot of time on Zoom platforms or Microsoft Teams or any other video platform, there are ways that you can trick yourself into having more of a conversational tone. So, for me, on the other side of my camera right now is a picture of my family. They're my favorite people on the planet. And sometimes I change my desk. And when I change my desk, there's a picture of my son that lines up directly behind my camera. And because I love them so much and they're the people that matter to me so much, my brain sees them peripherally even though I'm not talking to them. And I talk kinder and I talk softer. And that means that whomever is on the other side of that Zoom presentation or meeting that I'm having also gets the benefit from that approach. And their brain factors me in as a friend, not a foe. So my messaging gets heard much stronger than it might have otherwise if I used a harsh tone or a high tone or any other tone that's not quite as connected to the tones we use with the people that are in our inner circles. So those two things are important. Lower your your pitch and soften your tone come up with that one that is the tone you use with the people that you really care about and enjoy and trust. Then moving on to a headier topic of my favorite neuroscience is that oftentimes when we're talking, whether it's a meeting or just a negotiation, we spend way too much time talking at people with our ideas. And so When we talk about working memory, when I first started teaching neuroscience back in 2015, the idea was that we could keep six to eight pieces of information in our working memory at any given time. Now, in more recent research, that information is pretty much inflated. And now researchers say that there's probably about four things that you can keep in your working memory. And if you're stressed or conversations are are tough, or it's about topics that we're not familiar with, it's maybe one or two. So that means that you have to be very mindful about how you're delivering information and sharing chunks so that people's brains can absorb what you're saying. It's not that they're not necessarily interested. It's just that their brains can't hold everything that you're trying to download to them. So for me, I'm not a tech person. And so if I have a problem with my phone and somebody says, "Okay, you know, go to settings and then you push go down to the third thing where it says general and then you open up this tab and then you do this and then you hit that. I'm still saying, okay, wait a minute, I'm, I'm in settings, what was the next thing? And it's not that I don't have the IQ, it's that my brain doesn't have the data points to manage that information as fast as it's being given to me. So remember that when you're thinking of what it is you want to convey, maybe do a little bit of time pre-planning your conversation and break it down into chunks that are four or less and even less, again, if the stakes are high or it's new information. Also with that in mind, just because you said it Doesn't mean I heard it. So, when we're having difficult conversations and my stress chemicals are elevated, there's a lot going on in our brains, and our brains are not great at multitasking. So, that means our memory decreases, our IQ decreases. And so, you may have told me something, but that doesn't mean it's one of those four things that have stuck in my brain. So, with that being the case, I want you to really repeat key topics when they become relevant again and just don't assume that they were in there. So for instance, when I am doing a mediation or a negotiation with parties, I oftentimes talk about how the process is confidential. And so I say that at the beginning, and inevitably, if I didn't say it again, people would email me and say, can you send me the notes about this? Or I was talking to somebody about this, which clearly violates the terms of confidentiality. So what I've learned over time is at the beginning of these events, I talk about confidentiality. If I'm going to break them up into sessions where I'm talking to one party versus the other party, I remind them that the process is confidential. So they shouldn't be phoning a friend while I'm not talking to them. And then as they're leaving, I tell them again, it's confidential. Remember not to share this with anyone um, until we're done or maybe not ever if there is a non disclose agreement in there. So again, repeating it once does not mean, or saying it once doesn't mean that people have heard it. So then there's a process called compassionate communication, and it was created by neuroscience researcher Mark Waldman and Andrew Newberg out of Loyola Marymount University. And they started realizing through their research that not only do we talk too much, but we talk in brain unfriendly ways. And they realized that there's a a number of words, so back to that four pieces of information, there's ways that you can share information that are more easily absorbed by the brain. And one of those is by limiting your word usage. So this is going to sound shocking. It does to everyone I've ever shared it with, but each statement that you make should be 10 words or less. 10, that's not that many words when you think of how many words you use you know, in normal conversations. They also say that you could use up to 20 words, but you should never be speaking longer than 30 seconds without a break. If you don't take any pauses, then there's a couple things that happen. One, if my brain is trying to keep up with you, you're never giving my brain a chance to actually take the information you've given me, put it somewhere so that I can absorb more information. And if it's new, it's even more confusing because my brain's looking for something to take that new information and align it with that already exists in my brain. And if you're just talking too fast, i never get the chance to have the benefit of that. There's another problem, too, is if this is a high stakes conversation, if you're just barreling through words and talking really fast and you're not giving yourself a break, you're also not giving your own brain a chance to think through your responses and absorb the strategy and the nonverbal communication of, Am I nailing this? Do I need to say anything differently in there? And finally, if we're barreling through this conversation, just we're dumping at people and say I'm that person and you're going on and on and on. And I have a question and I don't have a chance to infuse that question or that comment or that thought, then I just keep rethinking what it is that I want to say to you as soon as you stop talking, which also means I'm not listening to you anymore. So I want you to consider making big, bite-sized, meaty pauses in between those concepts that you're sharing. And I want you to really get used to playing with silence. Oftentimes when we ask questions, if somebody doesn't answer the question right away, then we start talking again and we restate the question or we start giving them answers or telling them what we think they should say. That's using your brain. That's not using their brain. Instead, learn to be silent and sit in that silence for a long time until they get a chance to join you in the conversation in a meaningful way. So if you lower your word count and you take some big meaty pauses and you actually use silence, these things are so much more beneficial to both your brain and the person listening to you. So I want to share you a story um, about my mom. And this story will illuminate a process that I use when I teach neuroscience and communication with students at Boise State University and and in many of my other classes. And so oftentimes I have them overemphasize the pauses and overemphasize the minimizing of words just because it's like blowing up a balloon. When you blow up a balloon and it stretches really big, it's and you let the air out, it's bigger than it was, you know, when you started. And so I have them practice this to an extreme level that drives them crazy. But then when they're done, they're slower than they would have been, and they're using less words than they would have been. So it's in the the realm of overstretching. So when I tell you this story, it is also in that realm of overstretching. So my mom is 91. And I call her regularly because I don't know when I'll get another day to call and talk to her. And my mom is not the person who taught me conflict resolution. And so we don't always see eye to eye on some of these neuroscience topics. And so they can be quite entertaining. So one day I was on a lunch break from a class I was teaching at Boise State University. And I called my mom. And I said, hey, mom, how are you? And she said, I'm great. How are you? And I said, I'm, t- I'm good. I'm teaching that neuroscience class at BSU. And, and we're on a break. And my mom said, is that that class where you teach people to talk sloth slow? And I said, well, yeah, it is that class. And she said, I would hate that class. And I said, mom, that's not very nice. But Yeah, I get a lot of people really struggle with the talking slow thing. But at the end, there's amazing things that have come out of that class. I've had people propose to each other after a while, they become business partners, they become lifetime friends, like it's a cool class. And my mom said, I would never take it. I'm too busy. And I said, at this point, she was 85. I said, you're 85, you're retired, you have nothing going on. Like, what are you talking about? You're too busy. And she said, no, there's no way that would, you know, we had a relative who talked really slow. He was from the South annoyed the hell out of me. I would never do this. And then I had an idea. I said, I understand. I do hear that a lot. I wish you would try this sometime, because it really is amazing in how it helps people connect. My mom said, never going to happen. So let's talk about something else. So for a half hour, I talked exactly like I am talking to you with huge meaty chunks between each word. This is not normal. I know that. And still, I did it for a half hour with her. At the end of a half hour of talking sloth Slow, I said, Well, mom, it was great chatting with you, and I need to go do some prep for the rest of the afternoon. And then, wait for it, my mom said, I love you, Carol. This is one of the best conversations we've had in a long time. (laughs) Want to know who laughed? Yeah, this girl. And I said, really? What made this conversation so good? And she said, you know, you're always in a hurry. You always have so much going on. And today it just felt like you were fully present, listening to me and just engaging with me. And that just felt really good. I kept my laugh in, but I did say Did you happen to notice I was talking sloth slow the whole time? My mom used silence, then a little bit of profanity, and then said, I love you, you brat. And when I tell this story, there's an interesting thing that happens. It doesn't matter if I'm telling kids in an elementary school about conflict resolution and how to talk nicer, or I'm talking to adult learners or people in organizations with whom I'm consulting, everybody stops and really pays attention to the story. Even if they were checking their phone earlier or zoning out or or needing a break, they all log in. And there's some really great science about that. It's actually out of the Paris Brain Institute that's really new. So Pauline Perez was leading some research and found that when you make stories when you have well told stories we actually can recall those better than just basic facts so when i tell you stories like i am today that's something that lingers and there's another really cool thing that happens with it is it regulates our heart rates with each other or synchronizes would be a better word so My heart rate, your heart rate, anyone else listening to the story, they all synchronize, which all gives us a unique connection. And here's the big plot twist in that is that we don't even have to be in the same room. It can be anyone listening to the same captivating story and they can be tens of thousands of miles apart and yet they all synchronize the same way. So if you're not utilizing stories, then you're missing a huge opportunity to connect with the brains and the hearts of the people with whom you're trying to communicate. So sometimes it's not just the fact you're trying to convey, but can you convey that through a meaningful story that lingers and sticks with somebody? I oftentimes say that we may not be able to change the whole world, but we absolutely can change the people next to us. And so if you speak a little more effectively and utilize those stories and put yourself out there with them, our brains and hearts really receive that information really well. So the final thing or almost final thing that I want to share with you is that words matter. And it's not just what you're saying, it's not just how you're saying it, but sometimes it's just a simple word. And if you're dealing with international audiences, then you really have to think about the slang of your country of origin. So one time when I was teaching years ago, and we were talking about this concept with my students, the word dude came up. And I had a student who was from China. And that student shared that for years he thought that dude was a form of American punctuation because it always came at the beginning or the end of a sentence. So it'd be like dude, whatever, blah, 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 or <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Hey, dude. And so he didn't know it was just slang for quite some time. And so somebody told him and so you'll want to minimize the use of that depending on where people are from and who you're trying to reach out to you also want to consider the pronunciations of words so for instance um, i love diet coke i'm not a coffee drinker diet coke is my go-to in the morning It is not so much about the caffeine as it is about the bubbles, but it makes me happy. And I call it pop, but some people call it soda, um, depending on where they're at. That's one example. Uh, If you're thinking of a heterosexual relationship, the person that's married to your uncle, um, to me, is my aunt. But some people say aunt. Right. And then more importantly, um, to me, is one that is near and dear to my heart. So if you think of the cartoon that's the roadrunner and the other animal, Wiley e. Coyote, um, I call a coyote a coyote all the time. My husband calls a coyote a coyote. And we both think each other is wrong. And we've had lots of laughs about them to where one time we were looking at buying a plot of land up in the foothills outside of Boise, Idaho. And I was looking out, my husband's a horticulturist and I was looking out and we were talking about where our garden would be. And I was wondering what would eat the stuff in my garden. And I was thinking of deer. I was thinking of rabbits and I was wondering if there was anything else. And my husband said, well, like, what else do you think it might be? And I said, I don't know, a coyote. And he said, a coyote's not going to eat anything in your garden because they don't exist. It's a coyote, Carol. And so to this day forward, if somebody uses the word coyote or coyote, I don't hear the rest of what they're saying because I laugh in my head and I think, and oh my gosh, I can't wait to go home. That person said it the right way or that person said it the wrong way. And I lose the conversation. Likewise, if you're in an organization that uses technical language that might not be familiar to your listener, when you share those words, even if you tell people what they mean, there's a delay because it's an unfamiliar familiar word in their brain. And so it takes a little more time for them to absorb that word, even if you've defined it previously. So that goes back to where those pauses become really important. And another one I would say is that use the words that the people with whom you're speaking utilize. So one example would be, I was teaching a mediation class and there was a woman in the class, she was about 83, and she had been mediating for many, many decades. And she was just taking the class as a refresher, and she wanted some of the neuroscience information. And when I mediate between parties, it's the parties who are deciding what it is that they're going to agree upon. It's not me. I'm just facilitating the conversation. And yet, I use the word we uh, to signify that I'm in it with them. I'm part of their team. We are going to figure this out. And one break, that lady came up to me and said, Carol, there's something that you are saying that is just wrong. And I asked about that. And she says, you keep using the word we, and you're not the one deciding, they're deciding. So you should not be using that word. And I explained to her why I used it. And it still really troubled her. And you know what? It really doesn't matter, right? It's not the hill to die on. I wanted her to get my messaging. I didn't care about fighting over a word. So for the rest of the class, I utilized the word I or you, you know, and not, um, not we. And she was able to learn and hear and continue on with getting some some education in there. And that was much more important than getting log jammed in whether it could be we or whether it should be they. And so finally, I also want to talk to you about the labeling. So when you're speaking to someone, I want you to explain how something shows up rather than labeling the person an example of this that is being highly overused right now is the word narcissist it's driving me crazy and if the only thing you get out of this um, podcast for today which I hope it's not but if you were gonna pick out one thing stop using that word because it is minimizing the effectiveness of your statement so many people think that everyone they're dealing with are narcissists, but the reality is that narcissists, when they are actually prescribed or diagnosed narcissist, is somewhere between zero and 6.2% of the population. And that's according to the DSM, which stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that's put out by the American Psychological Association. So when you're thinking of how often you hear people talk about narcissists, and the reality is that it's 6% or less of the population, you likely are not dealing with a narcissist, instead, you're dealing with somebody who has tendencies that are similar to what a narcissist might have and is much more effective if you talk about those, especially if the person with whom you're talking to is the person you think is a narcissist. So if you call me a narcissist, I'm not listening to the rest of what you're saying. I'm just ready to defend how wrong I think you are. Instead, what you can talk about is it really feels like you come across as being superior to everyone else. Or it really seems like you don't seem to have the ability to show empathy for me when I'm going through something. Or it seems like you look down at me as being inferior to you. I want you to talk to people in relationship to what you see as the behavior that's troubling you, don't label them. Because when you label them, then your brain decides that you have to fix them rather than the problem that you're trying to fix. And they're not listening to you anymore because they certainly don't appreciate the labels that you're giving them. So with that in mind, I want to give you one final approach to having better conversations that lead to actual constructive dialogue rather than shutting people down. And it's called the OFTEN strategy. And OFTEN is an acronym. So O stands for observe. F stands for feel. T stands for think. E stands for empathize. And N stands for negotiate. So when you have a conversation about something that's hard or something that's frustrating you or something that's triggering you, this often strategy is a a really great, powerful way to start the conversation. So I'll give you an example of how that works. When my son um, was living at home, his one chore was to do the dishes. In the evening, and I love to cook. I owned a restaurant. Um, I I love to start his day with a meal that's going to just give him the best start to having everything he needs to be successful for that day. And he just has to do the dishes at the end of the night. Oftentimes, I wake up in the morning and the dishes aren't done, and it really ticks me off. And I know it's because he has homework to do or had homework to do, and he wants to be a professional gamer, and that oftentimes happens at nighttime. So to use the often strategy with him to open a dialogue about how we're going to fix this, O would be, son, I observed that when I came downstairs uh, this morning, the kitchen was a disaster still. And the F, the feel would be, I'm feeling really angry and frustrated because we've talked about this a million times. It's the one major chore that you have. And it's not like a big ask. T for thinking would be, I'm guessing it didn't happen because you must have had too much going on between the gaming you wanted to do and the schoolwork that you had going on. And then the empathy is, I know those things are really important to you. And I know you have big goals and big plans around them. And then the end for negotiate is how about we sit down and figure out an approach that's going to work for both of us better so that I don't want to wring your neck and you're not frustrated all the time because you're trying to juggle too many things at a time that doesn't work well for you. Do you see how that works? I'm not diminishing him as a person, I'm not diminishing the things that are important to him, I'm just telling him what I noticed, what I'm feeling about it, what I'm thinking about it, showing him some empathy, and then asking him to engage in a conversation with me about it. I might not be right with what my observations and feelings or thoughts are, but that also opens a conversation where he can sit and share with me his thoughts around the topic and they all can lead forward much more peacefully to a resolution and with that in mind it brings us to the end of our time together today so please do a pitch check a tone check especially when you're activated and upset and slow down practice find somebody to practice with if you practice with um, talking slow to your loved ones They may say, are you having a stroke? Are you okay? Um, But just practice. You can tell them that, no, I'm just practicing talking slower and using less words. you want to do it with me? If you lean in, people typically have a great time doing it. It's really weird the first few times. And then all of a sudden, it becomes really natural and cool. And I want you to incorporate stories because they stick with people. So the messaging that you share is something that stays on so much longer with them than they would if you're just sharing facts. And then I also want you to be careful of the word usage. Go ahead and adapt your words to the people with whom you're interacting because that will keep them focused on your messaging and not focused on how the word didn't align with what it is they think they would have rather heard. So I share these concepts and so many more daily with my clients, whether I'm giving keynote speeches or mediating or consulting or training. And if you would like to learn more about any of these conversations or have a conversation about how I can help you or your team, reach out to me by visiting my website, carolbarks.com. I really would love to hear from you and also Please, if you enjoyed this podcast, share it with others and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Until next time, I'm Carol Barks with Before It Begins. Thanks for spending time with me.